I see the future that's within our grasp. From the Political Science Department at UW-Madison. Democracy is not a prophecy, it's self-actuating. I'm Claire Salmi. I'm Cole Wozniak. And I'm Fiona Hatch. This is more work than in my previous life. I thought it would be easier. This is 1050 Bascom. In this episode of 1050 Bascom, we welcome back Professor Howard Schwaber to talk about his teaching and research career at UW-Madison. This episode marks the end of the professor's final semester at UW, as he prepares to retire after a decades-long career as a teacher and prolific researcher. We spoke with the professor about some of his favorite memories at UW and what's next for him as he prepares for his next phase of life beyond the Badger State. Because we are all political science nerds here, we did pick the professor's brain about a few notable current events around campus in the nation for one last time. We deeply enjoyed our time talking with Professor Schwaber. We hope you will enjoy too. Thank you so much for joining us today, Professor Schwaber. It's a pleasure to get to talk with you. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Let's jump right into the big question. Why are you retiring now? Students love your classes on civil liberties and constitutional law, and you are a vital voice on campus on so many of the cultural and election-related cases the state and the nation are facing in this pivotal moment of American democracy. Why now? What's next? Well, it's kind of you. You left out the question of whether I like the students. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's, it's a two-way thing here. Uh, I've been doing this for a long time. The areas in which I teach are becoming highly contentious. I, none of that—that's true. But n- neither of those is the reason for retirement. Reasons for retirement: one, um, due to work conditions, my wife and I have had to live in separate cities for six years, and I'm really very tired of that. And we just couldn't figure a way out of it without one of us not working anymore. And so that turned out to be me. So this is the case. I've been doing this for longer than I've ever done anything uh, in my life. Um, I've lived in Madison longer than I've ever lived in one place in my life. So it's just kind of a general sense of, of getting old and time to move on. And, you know, I'm given the choice, uh, I'm very happy actually to step aside and make room for a younger scholar because I kind of feel like I've, I've lost a step and, and someone younger and more energetic might come in and, and do a better job. What's been your favorite part of teaching at UW-Madison? Well, there were two occasions, two different occasions, in which I was called in the middle of the night to bail a student out of jail. So that surely qualifies as some kind of highlight. There are also two occasions on which I perform marriages for students. So I've really kind of covered a gamut of, of events here. I just wanted to get those two stories in there. That's, that's the only reason for being here. <laughs> <laughs> two, separate, uh, two separate students? These were separate people, yes. Mm-hmm. And did you do it? Oh, yes, all, yes of course. <laughs> no, this story doesn't work otherwise. No. I said, no, just suffer. That, 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 that's not a good story. They called you and you said no? <laughs> no, that's, no, I went down and, I went down and, and bailed them out. <laughs> and they paid me back. Yes. So how has teaching and interacting with students impacted your life outside of bail and marriages? <laughs> oh, well, it's hard to remember the, the rest. Uh, no, um, that's hard to answer. It's been such an enormous part of my life for the last 25 years, and actually longer because uh, when I was a PhD student, I taught a seminar. So I've been teaching for, for 30 years. There's probably, I mean, think of it this way. I probably spend more time talking with students than in any other category of person. I spend more time talking to students, certainly, than any other category of person, lectures and so on, than any other category of person. Um, in sheer numbers, 
students must be 90% of the people I know. I haven't really sat down and thought about this carefully, but, you know, so this is an, or, it's an enormous, ever-changing community of which I'm a part, and in which I spend a great deal of my waking hours, and so it's, it's teaching and being with students at the University of Wisconsin is home. What do you think have been some of your biggest or most important contributions to your specific field of study? I have no idea how to answer that question. <laughs> um, I was once a judge for the City of Madison Halloween costume contest. I do. I would like to have that on a sort of plaque or memorial that is uh, put up in my memory. I, you know, I've written some things. I'm, I'm, cer- certainly, for all of us, it is wildly unlikely that anything we write will ever have as much effect as our teaching. Mm. If you Let's assume generously that out of every hundred students that I've taught, uh, you know, five have really taken something valuable away from that. Well, I've taught 5,000 students in the time that I've been here. So that gets to be a bunch. It's a bunch. Um, so, I mean, I, it, it has to be. It's, it's utterly unquantifiable. Um, I can't possibly provide specifics, but the, whatever contribution there has been has to have come through teaching. Is there um, anything in particular that you feel has been really meaningful for you to teach other people? Yeah. So, I mean, in academic terms, extremely lucky. I get to teach the American Constitution. Uh, I really can't think of a topic I'd rather be teaching. U.S. history, U.S. political thought, of course. That's certainly a good one. And the other, I mean, the other course that I absolutely love teaching is, it's now called 160, Introduction to Western Political Thought. Uh, it's, just, it's a introductory survey course, and those are my favorite kind of courses. And in a course like that one, for some students, probably some of it's familiar, but for the vast majority of students, all of it is completely strange. Uh, for the vast majority of non-students, all of it is completely strange. There aren't that many people walking around, you know, who've read Al-Farabi uh, or whomever we're covering that particular week. And, you know, the, the, the exciting part is when you see students, when you, when you can tell, are making new connections or thinking things they haven't thought before or startled by something. Those moments where you can actually see something happening and I, I've never had any class that does that as often as, as the introductory class in political thought. Can you talk about what has changed the most when it comes to teaching political science at UW-Madison during your time here? Well, students have become intolerant, vicious, anti-freedom. Oh, sorry. Um, <laughs> that was my Fox News interview later. <laughs> uh, honestly, not much. Um, I mean, it is such a... It is such a fetish in American public thought to talk about college students. We are always being bombarded with books and articles and talking heads telling us about the state of the student. This isn't new. Uh, you know, the Doonesbury cart- I remember a Doonesbury cartoon from the 70s where a reporter is on campus and someone says, oh, the always popular state of the student story. I mean, this has been, you know, a thing forever. And I think I've changed a bit about the way I teach, um, but I don't think the students have changed particularly. Ten years ago, a guy named William Derisrich wrote a book called Excellent Sheep. It got a lot of attention among people who teach college students. It said that college students are completely lacking in political convictions. Uh, they're just careerists or only care about getting a job or don't judge anything. They think everything. Now, of course, college students are raving ideological lunatics uh, who have moral judgments about everything, which is a hell of a turnaround in 10 years. I mean, you guys, you guys have evolved really quickly. I'm, as you can tell, deeply suspicious of the idea that anything very much changes um, styles change, issues change, 
I mean, certainly across decades and across generations, there are changes. But in the time I've been here now, Wisconsin students in Wisconsin teaching pretty much look the same as they did the day I got here. Mm. Younger. You're all getting a little younger. It's weird. Younger? Yeah. Mm. Uh, something about something you're eating. Or How about changes in the field of political science broadly? Have there been any changes in the past 30 years that you've taken note of? Oh, sure. Some are obvious. Much more sensitivity. Much, there's, there was always attention paid to issues of things like race and class and inclusion, but there's more attention paid now and more attention to identity issues, as there is in politics in general and, and the culture in general. I mean, any field of, it's a social science. Uh, it's, it's, if you're talking about someone who studies, you know, ancient thinkers or something, no, maybe not very much. But if you're talking about anyone who, talks, who studies current society, then it's going to reflect the changes in the society. I'm very pleased that in my own areas of political thought and constitutional theory, there's a much bigger emphasis on comparative study. There's a lot more attention being paid to, you know, not just, if you want to study, have a course on constitutionalism or constitutional philosophy, 30 years ago, it probably would have only talked about the United States Constitution, maybe a mention of another one. Uh, now it's perfectly standard to treat it as a comparative topic and look at a dozen different ones. And that's great. I'm a big fan of that. Other changes. Um, again, not really, not dramatically. So when I came into the field, it was a period when there was a bit of a tension between quantitatively oriented and formal model oriented people and people who were more interpretivist uh, and humanistic in their approach. There's still that tension. It's relaxed considerably. Don't ask. <laughs> um, academic silliness. So that's, that's calmed down in the field. Um, there are certainly um, more women in the field, more minorities in the field. That's nice to see. But these are not basic changes. These are qualitative changes. What a boring interview. Nothing has, 30 years have gone by and nothing has changed. Wow. <laughs> Just a little bit, and this doesn't have to be in the podcast, but do you feel like the polarized environment, and not necessarily the students, mm -hmm. but the students in a polarized environment has impacted how you talk and what you talk about in the class? Again, not really. Um, so I don't know if this has to do with the self-selection of the students who end up in my courses uh, or the way I teach or whatever it is, but I have not run into the phenomenon of, for example, conservative students being timid about expressing their opinions. Um, that just, just one, of the, one of the best classes I ever taught, I taught, a, it was a First Amendment class, where I had the president and vice president of the College of Republicans, the president and the vice president of the College of Democrats, the president of the Young Americans for Freedom, and one outright Stalinist. That class was a blast. <laughs> it was an absolute thrill. In my lectures, uh, I'll, I, will, I will reflect a little bit. One thing that has changed, I used to be very good, even in a large lecture hall, at getting discussions going. For one reason or another, after, in the last few years, I'm unable to do that, which is maybe a sign it's a good time to retire. But in smaller classes, it's still the case that you know, discussions are lively and ongoing always. And people have strong opinions, but I've never run into a problem. I occasionally joke that, you know, no one's ever picketed me and this pisses me off. Certainly I'm not shy about expressing my opinions. It's, it's, but I've always, my own opinions have always been received civilly. Each students with each other have always received one another's opinions civilly, vigorously, energetically, but civilly. I have yet to inspire the fear in students that would prevent them telling me to my face that they think I'm wrong. After 35 years, I just, I can't do fear, apparently, which just sucks. So, I mean, last semester I was teaching a seminar, and a student started to make a comment and stopped what she was thinking, what she wanted to say. And I said something like, go ahead, it's, this is a safe space. And two students simultaneously said, no, no it isn't. Um, <laughs> but I took that in a positive way, because it didn't mean they weren't, didn't feel free to express their views. They ex it's just expected to hear contrary views back at them. 
the polarization out there, I really haven't felt it in my classroom. I think Wisconsin, I think we are a lot better off than a lot of campuses. I hear stories from their campuses that I find vaguely shocking. Keep in mind there are 19.5 million college students, which is a mind-boggling number. If one-tenth of one percent of them behave like idiots throughout the course of an academic year, that's enough to fill news stories for the entire year. That's all you need. And the response to that has been of late, yes, but it's the ones at the most important schools, like Middlebury. Really? Middlebury graduates are the CEOs of the big companies and run the world and fill the Senate? I had not noticed that. That is really, uh, you know, there have, been, there have been events. I'm much, I'm much more concerned. We're kind of launching into a different topic, but it's a popular topic of discussion about free speech. Uh, I am much more concerned about the inability of administrators at many universities to understand basic principles of academic freedom and free speech. I think that's a true crisis. That's a true problem. They're everywhere, these, these, these situations. But I really don't buy the theory that students are, you know, we should be worried about uh, students not appreciating freedom and free speech and all that nonsense. And there's data. Uh, there's a positive correlation from the number of years people are in college and how strongly they believe in free speech. I don't think that's a coincidence. You mentioned that you were more worried about campus administrators. Oh, yes. Not to open Pandora's box, but what do you think they need to know? Oh, ours are actually pretty good. I haven't seen anything really bad here, but at, at campuses all over the country, um, administrators have... First, the administrators simply have to have a basic understanding of what the rules are. And you'd think that would be obvious, but to a shocking degree, they don't. And it's really quite startling sometimes. Second, administrators have to stand up to pressure. And whether there's pressure from students, but from alumni and donors, which can be a much bigger deal, from political authorities or just from the public. Administrators have to be able to stand up to that pressure and say, we just had an incident here, not on campus, but with a young woman who recorded a kind of a racist rant and it was posted to social media. This was clearly First Amendment protected speech. The 10 second version, speech is generally protected unless it falls into a specifiable category of unprotected speech. There is no specific unprotected category called hate speech. That's a popular term, it's not a First Amendment category. Uh, a lot of what we call hate speech falls into other categories, like sometimes it's a threat, sometimes it's harassment, right? But this was none of those things. The definitions of those, for example, of a threat has to be face-to-face -face, um, addressed to a particular person. In other words, each unprotected type of speech has a specific definition. And for purposes of this podcast, I'm going to ask you to take my word for it, or at least as a working assumption, except that this didn't fit any of them. So, of course, the university cannot take any action. That would be... That would be that's flat out unconstitutional. You can't punish people for exercising their right of free speech. So, and, and, these, and this time, the administrators stood firm. And Now, they didn't do a very good job of explaining themselves. The University of Wisconsin-Madison is, is starting a new position starting next year, Director of Strategic Communications. <laughs> well, and boy, do we need someone, because the university was absolutely right in this instance, but did an absolutely terrible job of explaining to the public why what, it was what right. What would you have done different than the LaVar's message? Oh, I would have had a, 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 a good couple of paragraphs explaining the First Amendment principles at stake, explaining that we are a state institution and therefore bound to abide by the First Amendment. I think there's a very widespread uh, ignorance, uh, even among faculty. There was an incident a few years ago. I, at, at my age, everything was five years ago. You know. Reagan was president about five years ago, I don't know, so, in which some faculty members did a survey supposedly to test student attitudes about freedom of speech, and it was designed by people who knew nothing about what they were talking, and particularly knew, obviously knew nothing about the First Amendment and what it requires, and it was just a terrible, terrible instrument. Uh, and ever since then, we've all been survey shy. So, you know, if you're going to work at a university, especially a public university, I think all of us, everyone involved in this place needs to have some education 
uh, as to what the rules are for these issues. But especially administrators, because administrators need to educate students. When a student comes and says, I've got a classmate who's on social media using racist words, I, want, I, I can't be in a class with that person. The correct response is, I'm really sorry you feel that way. But the First Amendment protects this person's speech, then you don't have the prerogative to decide what classes they're allowed to take. But that would be the basic message. I'm sorry, you were going to start to say something. Yeah, I have a question for you. So there's been some news circulating about the Wisconsin Law Student Student Bar Association, or Law School Student Bar Association, kind of pushing it back against the university. Um, they said that the Supreme Court, as recently as 2021, has held that a school has a, quote, regular regulatory interest in off-campus speech that is disruptive, and they cited Mahoney uh, mm-hmm. Area School District mm-hmm. versus, I'm actually not sure who this is, but basically it was a case from 2021, and they said that it included serious or severe bullying her, or harassment, right. targeting particular individuals right. and threats aimed at teachers or other students. Right. This didn't, but this didn't qualify as any of those things. Okay, and I'm wondering, because I'm, I'm just wondering, like I've heard people talking about this, and mm-hmm. just generally, like, where is the where are these students coming from? And I have like, no is idea. Is there a flaw here? I, I, I have no idea. Uh, I will have words with some of my colleagues at law school. I don't think they're doing a very good job educating uh, <laughs> uh, But actually, so the Mahoney case is a perfect illustration uh, of what is and is not protected. So anything directed at an individual, you're already in a whole different category, right? Uh, a threat to an individual, repeated messages harassing an individual, creating an environment that individuals can't tolerate, knowing that you're doing it. Those are, not, those, those are already a whole different story. Anything face-to-face is a whole different story. Bullying, harassment, or threats is a different story. This video contained none of those things. No one was named. Um, again, there's a technical standard, but it's called the true threat standard. Um, no one, I think, watching and listening to that video had the thought that they could identify someone who's being threatened with violence. I am going to go out and hurt the following person. It's really hard to get that out of that video. Disruption doesn't mean things that upset people. I mean, in a sense, this was disruptive. Students protested. Students missed classes in order to protest. A student walked out of one of my classes to go to a protest. But the disruption there was on the part of this, was based on this reaction. When we talk about unprotected expression in a school setting because it is disruptive, it means things like in the middle of a class, interrupting a discussion, preventing a lab from doing its work. You know, it's particularly the case, if we're going to go down the Supreme Court route, uh, in 2010, the Supreme Court came down pretty hard uh, in a ruling that said you can't have any new categories of unprotected speech. And they've been very slow to put flesh on the bones of the idea of institutional academic freedom. But most of all, we're a public university. Mahoney School District, that had to do with secondary school students. The, the standards are a little bit different for universities, and they should be. So moving from this video a bit, what has changed about American politics over the last decade that has surprised you the most? Um, no, I think the last decade has been one grim slog ever deeper into a morass of hate-filled ignorance. And not surprised, really. I was going to say. <laughs> not thrilled, but not surprised. Hmm. What sorts of challenges do you think American politics are going to face in the future that could either be short or long term? And maybe this is in the context of election law and mm-hmm. the legal guardrails that held in 2020 in the context of challenges to the presidential election. Oh, I know. I think we're, I think we're in deep trouble uh, uh, for a number of reasons. One is social media. Technologies of communication always, new, dramatic changes in technologies of communication are always socially disruptive. That was true of the telegraph, it was true of the telephone, it was true of the television. Uh, and it's certainly true of the internet. We're, if anything, moving backwards rather than forwards in terms of getting any kind of serious regulatory control with respect to the internet, and more than that. And and Congress is considering a couple things right now, the Supreme Court is considering a couple of cases right now, but there's really just nothing. No guidelines at all. 
no judicial guidelines about what the Constitution does and doesn't permit, no attempts at achieving policy agreement as to what we ought to be trying to do, um, no serious attempt that I can see to define in either legal or political terms what kind of space the Internet is. And while we are dithering, the technology is running away from us at a very high speed. That's one thing. Second thing is, and here I'll be very specific, the Supreme Court has really failed American democracy in a fundamental way. Uh, on gerrymandering issues, on campaign finance issues, on a really peculiar definition of freedom of political speech. What you spoke of as guardrails, right? There are institutional guardrails, there are also normative guardrails. And one of the functions of laws and constitutions is to articulate shared norms. If, if what the court says uh, doesn't serve that function, that's a form of constitutional failure. And in the last 50 years, in particular, the other branches of the federal government have essentially ceded to the court that function. They don't really engage in norm articulation, certainly not the current Congress. So that's, that's uh, to my mind, a, a piece of constitutional failure uh, and a bad one. And I don't see an immediate repair unless and until enormous numbers of voters get fed up. And we're always looking for signs of that. Uh, for years, uh, uh, from, uh, starting in 2008, the election of Annette Ziegler to the Wisconsin State Supreme Court, I went around an interview saying, well, it all depends how long Wisconsin voters will put up with this. When the abortion issue became part of the story, apparently that changed the tune. But without that issue, I'm not sure it would have. That is, without that specific, highly contested, highly charged and motivating issue, uh, I'm not sure that Wisconsin voters would have gotten tired of the fact that their state Supreme Court races have become really viciously divisive partisan slime fests uh, of the worst sort. You know, there, there doesn't seem to be a sense of regret for what we've lost when that happened. So I would say that the American, American politics is in, is in deep trouble. I very much think of Trump as a symptom, not a cause. Uh, he's more riding a wave than, than, than creating it. Uh, but I don't see a lot of signs of that wave letting up very much. I think you're, I like your generation better. If the rest of us will just die and get out of the way. But, you know, four years in the desert. Send them off, let the generation die, and then everyone can take over. But, you know, a lot of us were fairly idealistic and decent when we were college students. It's, it's, it's how well you can hold on to that. Are you concerned about 2024 and verifying the election? Not particularly. Uh, there will be noise. There will be confusion. There will be attempts to make noise. But for one thing, at the, uh, in most places, Arizona might be an exception, but in most places, um, in 2016 and 2020, the noise about challenging the veracity of elections was coming from Republicans. It was, it was a one-sided complaint, a one-sided narrative at that point. A lot of Republicans have come to realize that discrediting elections means their own people don't get into office. And so at the state level, a lot of Republicans are not interested in replaying that. Because if you invalidate an election that elected a Republican candidate and you've got to redo the election, you just lost that. I mean, you might get it back again, right? But you just cost yourself a seat. A lot of Republicans are realizing that it's a bad idea to clamp down on absentee ballots and early voting because a lot of Republican voters like to use absentee ballots and early voting. I mean, there's a lot of ways in which reality on that particular issue has, has gotten in the way of a very successful revolutionary storm-de-building kind of narrative happening again. It's also the case, I think, that people genuinely didn't believe that January 6th conspirators uh, who committed active violence would go to prison. And the fact that people are getting fairly severe jail and prison terms has caught people's attention. Um, so, you know, if you compare today to, let's say, the 1950s and 60s, in many ways we're much better off. Crime is much lower, racial violence is much less, Poverty is not as bad as it was. Things are bad, but a little historical perspective helps. I don't think we're anywhere near dissolving into a violent revolution uh, or a civil war or an election outcome. I think we are very, very close 
to devolving into a, what you might call a very compromised system of democracy that looks more and more like, say, Hungary, uh, and less and less like, say, Belgium. But there's a, there's a long way to go between that and, say, 1861. What makes you optimistic about the future of American politics? I think that most of what I see as really profoundly dysfunctional comes from old people. And we will eventually die. That's my promise. <laughs> That's what I will do for you. <laughs> I look at the... And it's not just, it's not just Z. I lose track of the names. Uh, ZX, Millennials, whatever, generally speaking, strike me as a lot less prone to the kind of ideological rabidness. And you can see some of it on both sides. Um, but my, op- my optimism is, is squarely on the shoulders of, of people who are, let's say, 40 and younger at the moment. I was just wondering, in your time here, has there been a member of the political science faculty that has inspired you, especially in their academic work or in their teaching style? Sure. Uh, more than one. Um, especially. And Ken Rayer, I think, is simply outstanding. The, the work that he does is important. His teaching is absolutely terrific. It is quite different from mine in style, uh, but I love guest lecturing in his classes and, and, and vice versa. I think he has truly been an essential piece of the teaching mission of this department for all the time that he's been here. So I'll vote him. Are you worried about the legitimacy, the legitimacy of the Supreme Court in the eyes of the public in the coming years? Well, I think it's too high at the moment. It's still I, too high. I, I think the court doesn't deserve the degree of legitimacy it's assigned to it uh, at present. No, look. I mean, yes, no, maybe. Um, I, I don't know that it's necessarily a good thing to worship the Supreme Court, uh, or even the Constitution, for that matter. There are a lot of things wrong with the Constitution. So, some of them, you said you were in 411. So, right, then you know, one of the exercises I love to do at the beginning is ask people, how many of you think of the Constitution as a finely drawn, perfectly balanced document? Then I point out, well, it tells us how a war starts, but not how to end it. It tells who the president can appoint, but not who can dismiss them. It's full of halves of explanations of things. How can you call that a perfectly designed, you know, well-crafted? This thing was thrown together by a committee. The court, you know, in 2016, among Trump voters, I, I don't recall the exact numbers, um, so let me caveat right now. 40% listed the court and the courts as one of their top two or three issues. Among people who voted for Clinton, it wasn't in the top ten. It was just a wildly asymmetric amount of attention being paid to courts and the influence that they can have. That's changing. I think somewhat. I think these recent these recent issues of discovering that Supreme Court justices have not been accurately reporting the gifts they've been receiving. I mean, the scandal is they're not reporting. No one thinks these guys are taking uh, suitcases full of money uh, in order to rule on particular cases. Is that they're not being transparent in the way that everyone else is required to do, and that more generally, it just plays up the fact that these guys seem to think they're above the rules. I think it'd be a fine thing if I could change one thing with the U.S. Supreme Court. I'd make all opinions anonymous. I think there's a huge pressure. That, that these people trying to make themselves stars and trying to make doctrines. I want to have the Kennedy doctrine. Kennedy wrote the way he did, in my view, because he was trying deliberately and self-consciously to create something new that would be his legacy. And the result has been a mess in terms of jurisprudential holdings that he's bequeathed to us. And they all do that because they put their names on it, and then they become famous, and then they go around in talk show circuits, and, and they get identified as being liberal or conservative, or whatever. I'd also put in 18-year uh, term limits with staggered appointments, so in every presidential term there's one appointment. But Making the opinions anonymous sounds trivial. It would be such an improvement in the, in the wildly unwholesome cult of celebrity that currently surrounds these justices. Mm-hmm. No other constitutional court works this way. Israel's did for a while. There was a guy named Aaron Barak back in the 70s and 80s. Here it's just a, a completely unhealthy impulse. 
Is there any chance that you might be back again teaching at UW-Madison, even a class or two here and there, or are you gone forever? Well, I'm moving to California in four weeks, so at least for a little while uh, I'll be away. Um, if we end up, when the time comes that my wife finally decides she's ready to retire, she's older than me for God's sake, but um, certainly Madison is one of the places we talked about coming back to, and if, and if we did, sure, I'd absolutely be happy to teach the occasional lecture. I've actually already discussed that with the department, warned them that I might, I might come back looking. You warned them. I have a number of projects that I'm working on. I'm, I'm in the middle of co-editing a couple of books. I've got a couple of chapters and articles that I'm working on. You know, this stuff doesn't, in, in our business, doesn't go away all of a sudden. doesn't dry up all of a sudden. It kind of trickles along. I may pick up a lecture or two out there, Berkeley or at USF or one of the places out there if they have a... If they have a place for me to, to do an adjunct lecture. Other than that, we'll see. What will you miss about Madison or restaurants or coffee shops around the area or outdoor places that you will miss when you move to California? Yeah, that's... I like Madison fine. I'm going to Marin County. Um, there's a, a tongue nice place in Madison. Uh, I, don't know if, I don't know if I'll miss them exactly. I don't get that attached to the place, particularly like the, the restaurants or bars or hangout joints or even downtowns. Um, but, you know, there's a ton of nice places in Madison. I really, I love the, I mean, you've, you were asking about things that have changed. Madison is a much nicer place to be than it was 25 years ago in terms of the number and quality of, like, restaurants and available grocery stores and just all sorts of ways. Uh, it's, a, it's developed in mostly positive ways a lot in the last couple of decades. But, you know, I can't honestly say that I'm going to miss the food in Madison when I'm moving to California. That's, that's a big ask. <laughs> I think Madison food is pretty good on average. It's absolutely, it absolutely is. Spent a lot of time in the Bay Area, have you? <laughs> Only a little. Does anyone have anything else we want to throw in? All right. Well, thanks again for being on the podcast, Professor Schwaber. And we my really pleasure. appreciate all of the times you've been here over your career. Good. So, Always my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Come back. For more information on 1050 Bascom, visit polysci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. The podcast is edited by Claire Salmi, Fiona Hatch, and Cole Wozniak, and is produced by Amy Gangle. Thanks for listening.